Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Laura. How are you? It's so good to be back. So fun to be back. And we're trying something a little different this week, remotely recording from, uh, because everybody knows that even when you live close to somebody in Boston, it's actually really far away. (laughs) I am so happy to be back. It has been, um, it just doesn't feel right unless I'm arguing with you about a case. (laughs) Exactly. There have been several big cases in our absence, so we have a lot to catch up on. Absolutely. And we are covering the Brian Walsh case. And this episode is called The Mystery of Malice, The Murder of Anna Walsh. On January 4th, 2023, the head of security at Tishman Spire called the Cohasset police for a well-being check on Anna Walsh, their operations manager. It wasn't like Anna to just not show up for work or not call. What would unfold in the coming weeks would shock the world. Cohasset is a sleepy, upscale seaside town about 30 minutes south of us here in Boston. It's really charming. Just shingled cape houses, stately homes, set back from tree-lined streets, wine bistros, boutique shops. It's really, Laura, the quintessential New England town. No, it's, it's quite beautiful. And Brian and Anna were quite beautiful. And like the town, they projected style, education, sophistication. I'm sure by now a lot of people have seen their pictures. And from the outside, things looked pretty perfect for them, Sarah. It looked, you know, three young children, beautiful homes, travel. I saw pictures with Hermes and Tiffany's bags. So they were really living this big lifestyle and projecting that on social media. But something was terribly wrong behind closed doors. And cracks in the perfect veneer had begun to show years before Anna's disappearance. Yeah, and really in recent weeks, Cohasset has become the fulcrum of an investigation into missing and presumably murdered mother of three, Anna Walsh. At the center of the investigation is Brian Walsh, her husband. So Sarah, let's go into some background and talk about who were Anna and Brian Walsh. Born in 1976 to Diana and Thomas Walsh, who was a prominent neurosurgeon in Boston, Brian grew up in wealth and privilege. Brian hopped from prep school to prep school, as well as college to college. But just wanted to point out, Laura, that this is actually a double Ivy League case for us. Both parties went to Ivy League. Brian got into Carnegie Mellon, but then something happened. Well, it looks like he started getting psychological or mental health care very early on. And after his freshman year was admitted for inpatient care at a very nice institution in the Berkshires. And so you've read the affidavit. We don't really know how long he was inpatient, but affidavits would come up later because apparently most of the time he was in there, his parents were fighting over who was going to pay for his treatment. That's right, because he had gone into this place called Austin Riggs out in the Berkshires, 
he just bailed out of Carnegie Mellon. Clearly, the Walshes, Diana and Thomas Walsh had a very contentious divorce. I actually looked up their divorce records, and I think they got divorced in 1985, if I'm not mistaken. And you're right, Laura. It was a lot of tension. Even Anna Walsh refers to the tension, to the fallout for Brian over his parents' contentious divorce. So he kind of flips from college to college. He also, he went to UMass Amherst. He also went to Northeastern. And this is the Ivy connection for him too. The Boston Globe reported that he went also went to the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, which this is a graduate school in government at Harvard. And all the big presidents have gone to this. Trudeau went there, Calderon, the former president of Mexico. The, the list of alumni is very, very impressive. Lots of presidents from around the world went to the JFK school. I guess it's called Harvard, Harvard Kennedy School now, but that's Walsh's Ivy connection anyway. I think it's clear that he was definitely a very intelligent man and had the capability to get into Harvard, to graduate. But it just doesn't look like he utilized that intelligence for good. And his work careers, I think we're going to see that come out a little more in the future. It's a little murky. He looks like he was involved in finance for the coming years. But we also see that he dabbled in art and wine and considered himself an expert in these areas. So there's a lot of kind of hazy, shady things going on, in my opinion. And I think that that will all come out fairly soon when we look at the finances of the couple. Me too. I I always think when someone lists themselves as a quote consultant, I'm like, yeah, well, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But anyway, Brian met Anna Nip. To be honest, I do not know if it's Nip or Knip or how to pronounce that name. I'm going to call her Anna Nip and I apologize if I get that wrong. But so he met her in 2008 at the Wheatley Hotel in Lenox where Anna was working. The Wheatley, I looked it up, Laura. It's like a Newport mansion in the middle of the Berkshires. It's unbelievable. It is. Yeah, no, it, it's amazing. And I mean, I think that was her specialty was luxury travel. And let's talk about her background a little because it's quite amazing what she was able to achieve. Well, first they met, they fell in love. She was married at the time, but just briefly to somebody by the last name, Nip. And I really think Brian swept her off her feet. I'm sure he projected wealth and kind of a lifestyle. And and I think that was very appealing to Anna because she grew up in war-torn Serbia in the 90s. So after communism released its stranglehold on that region, that area fell into a complicated civil war that divided the area along religious lines and resulted in a brutal ethnic cleansing of Muslims. Anna fled to the States to begin a better life. And she started out as a hotel maid, Laura. And she's very open about this. It's something I really love is that she cleaned toilets and she's like, I started out cleaning toilets, but she really was a go-getter. This woman, like, worked hard. She got herself into the Cornell School of Hospitality and was also an Ivy League person as well. No, she's very, very impressive. Yeah. And despite growing up in a, in a, in a war area, I'm sure it was incredibly traumatizing and difficult. And 
you're looking for food and, and everything like that. But she was a super positive person. And she posted a lot about optimism. She was very attractive, successful, always very fashionably dressed and confident. She used Cornell as a ticket, you know, that she had that Ivy ticket, and she really elevated her career. And she started working for esteemed hotels like the Wheatley, the Taj, the Newberry. But talk to us a little, you're in luxury, Laura, and <laughs> you, you you read up on some of their lifestyle things, some of her lifestyle. Can you, can you talk to that a little bit? Well, they lived the lifestyle of people who money was no object to, in my opinion. I do work in luxury and to see people who are, you know, they drank $3,000 a bottle whisk. Um, they shopped the luxury shops, Boston and anywhere else throughout their travels and spent a great deal of money. But I, I think that I'm not sure the money was really there, as we'll see, because it seems like Brian was kind of scamming to get more and more money to support that lifestyle. So obviously there wasn't money to support it. They were living above their means, in my opinion. Like so many people do. So many of the people that we cover on Ivy League Murder, I just feel like there's that, that's such a common theme to like really want to project a certain lifestyle. And particularly, Brian, you had a really interesting insight about him. Well, Brian just struck me as somebody, I mean, he, he was from money, but he was not from generational wealth. And I think through his experience in prep school and college, and many of us who've gone away to private colleges can maybe relate to being around people with great access to money and wealth. And I think Brian, because of especially prep school, had access to this. And I think he was almost like a reacher. He wanted more. He was never satisfied with what he had. He wanted more. He wanted more. And so he kind of did whatever it took to project that lifestyle. And I also think it's interesting here because we say so much about what she posted, Anna, or pictures we see, and it just really shows that we can be quite deceived from what we see on social media compared to what's really going on behind closed doors. Let's be honest, though, we all try to front on, on social media, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, it's, it's okay, but... Absolutely, but I think that many of us compare ourselves to other people and feel inadequate. And I mean, not that we want other people to not be doing it. We just don't ever know what's really going on. And I think that that's something that we have to keep in mind when we look at this picture-perfect family online. There was a lot more going on there. And I think Brian was constantly reaching to achieve a lifestyle that he couldn't afford. And we'll talk about that, the things he did to support that lifestyle. I can really see in their courtship too, probably how he super played that up. I'm sure she was like, wow, you know, I found this guy who's sort of from this good family and just projects this like, I can absolutely see how that played in their courtship. He was pretty good looking back then. I can really see sort of the seduction in a lot of ways. From Boston, like we are. And I mean, I think he had the friends in the social circle and status to support that. He was taking people out for $10,000 dinners. And very much, even as a teen, Laura, I, I read that he he never wore jeans. He was always dressed to the T. He would hang out at the Ritz-Carlton, like hobnobbing with the Boston Brahmins, the real blue bloods of Boston. And and so you had pointed out he had this real uh, Gatsby 
kind of aspect of him. Right. He wanted more. And I see a man who was just never comfortable in his own skin or himself and who really had so much intelligence and looks and but it was never enough for him. And and his life becomes a series of scams to support this lifestyle. Absolutely. And even behind the scenes with Brian and Anna, and we'll be talking to Bob Ward at the end of this episode, and he'll go into more detail about this. And he actually broke this part of the story. And it was a big part of the story that as far back as 2014, and before they were married, Anna called the police in Washington, D.C., saying a man threatened her and her friends' lives. And it's alleged that this was Brian Walsh. This is what Bob Ward, who is a local reporter here with Boston 25, broke. So we'll talk to him a little bit more in detail. And he has some insights and some things that he's pulled out also about their relationship, which is very interesting. So yeah, the couple married in 2015. And they, again, like exuded romance and all the sort of very charmed accoutrements of an upwardly mobile couple. I think they're going to actually discover more of Brian's conning behavior. I think more is going to come out. But the first one we really know about Brian went into a real estate deal where his father was going to pay for expensive renovations on a property that the father owned. And then upon selling the property, Brian would make some of the money from the sale and then reimburse his father for the cost of the renovations. What happens is Brian basically pockets all the money and disappears. And this is so sad to me, Laura, because the father, Thomas Walsh, neurosurgeon. He'd worked all his life. This really put a dent in his retirement. He wasn't able to kind of live the life that he wanted to because Brian bilks him out of about a million bucks. Absolutely. And again, they weren't extreme. I mean, they had money, but this money meant he was forced to work a lot longer. He didn't have that kind of money to lose. And Brian was willing to sacrifice his relationship with his father for that money. Yeah. And when Thomas Walsh passed away in 2018, he left nothing to Brian. And Brian allegedly stole the will out of the house and destroyed it, then appointed himself the personal rep on his dad's estate. He sold art out of the house. He also used liquid assets. And I looked into the court case, Laura, and it's it's sort of these battling affidavits. One thing that was really notable in the affidavits is that one of them, it's called an affiant, by the way, someone who puts out an affidavit, says that he witnesses Brian threatening to kill somebody. He says, I witnessed firsthand what Brian was capable of. I saw Brian attempt to smuggle out antiquities from China. When Brian was confronted, he picked up a stanchion and literally attempted to kill four or five guards that had come to talk to him about his crime. Brian is not only a sociopath, but also a very angry and physically violent person. What Thomas Walsh says in his will is this, I hereby bequeath to Brian Walsh my best wishes and none of my money. So I'm paraphrasing, but that's okay. Yeah, and none of my estate, basically. Yeah, and I think it just shows who Brian was, that he was willing to sacrifice this relationship with his father over this money. And, you know, this did eventually get litigious, and Brian was on to more scams. But what's remarkable about actually reading these affidavits is Brian's sense of reality versus the other people. It's pretty telling, actually. I just I think his sense of reality was like whatever he wanted to believe was the truth. It's pretty spooky anyway. 
So he kind of gets away with that particular con with his father, right? But then in 2016, Brian was living with a former classmate from Carnegie Mellon in South Korea. And the classmate commissioned him. The classmate had all kinds of art, like Herring. (laughs) Yes, thank you, Keith Herring. And he had Andy Warhol. So he gives Brian two Andy Warhol paintings. And he basically commissions Brian to sell those paintings. And I imagine Brian would get a commission from that, blah, blah, blah. Brian takes the paintings, sells them, dicks over his friend, basically. And then he not only does that, he takes the provenance from those two original Warhols and then tries to sell forgeries. He, He goes to France, he puts them on eBay, and he eventually finds an art dealer in L.A., who he does a sort of side deal with him for 80K for these, quote, Andy Warhols. The guy's an expert in Warhol, and he can tell immediately once he gets the paintings that these are forgeries. And we're, we're not going to go into super depth with this because we're actually going to be talking to Anthony Amore, who is an art theft and forgery expert. And so that's going to be one of our episodes, and we'll really deep dive on this particular thing because Laura... Anthony Warhol is the second most copied artist. Absolutely. And Brian did his homework. These were not impulsive scams. I think, as we'll go into later, this took a lot of thought, what he did. He sold the paintings. He then hired a forger. I mean, we'll get into it more later, but this was a well-thought-out scam, which to me, I mean, I don't understand. You know, he was a smart guy, but I mean, it seems completely inevitable he was going to get caught. But I think Brian just only thought about what was in front of him and getting that money right then at that time. Yeah. And I think that all goes back to living that crazy lifestyle, the $3,000 bottles of whiskey, the way living beyond their means. And so we'll talk to that a little bit too, because I think that was definitely one of the pressures that that was building. But suffice to say, Brian pled guilty in 2021 one to three federal charges related to the art theft and forgeries. And this is probably devastating for both Brian and Anna. He's basically out of commission at this point. Well, I think Brian's never had consequences for any of the behaviors. He's always kind of gotten out of it. It's always been with friends or family. And this time, you know, he's he's going to federal prison and looking at almost, what, three years in federal prison. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal for anybody, but you're right. Somebody like Walsh, who's used to... Being pampered. Being pampered and that, yeah, absolutely. And Davios does not deliver to federal prison as far as I know, so... I think the consequences were something he was definitely not used to. So Brian had to wear an ankle bracelet, which restricted him to dropping off and picking up the kids from school, doing errands at specific times. But essentially, he's confined to the home. And by then, Anna had become the breadwinner and traveled down to D.C. during the weekdays. And like we had said, she was working as, as the operation manager for Tishman Spire. That can't have been easy, Laura. No, and this was a big job with a lot of responsibilities. I'm sure she was extremely well paid. They had another apartment in D.C. I'm not sure if they did or she did. That might have just been in her name, I, that, I, the apartment. Well, I don't know. It's all going to come. I think we'll see all this stuff fairly soon coming out because we do know the house in Cohasset was a rental, which is interesting. Very interesting to me. So she's going back and forth and he's basically home with the children. 
he can't do too much. And he's awaiting sentencing on this crime. That's right. And so on New Year's Eve of 2022, a friend of the Walsh's, Jem Mutlu, celebrated with the couple. He said everything seemed fine, just even celebratory. But when Anna didn't show up for work at Tishman Spire in Washington, D.C., they reported her missing on January 4th. Brian also reported her missing, but notably after Tishman Spire had called. On that same day, the Cohasset police go to the Walsh residence to do a well-being check on Anna. They talk to Brian Walsh, and he tells them early in the morning on January 1st, Anna had to go back to Washington on a quote-unquote work emergency, and that she took a ride share to Logan Airport to fly down from Boston to Washington, D.C. Brian also told the police that it wasn't uncommon for Anna to be out of touch because of work and that it wasn't typical for her to call home. I find this a little hard to believe with three small children. And they ask Brian about his whereabouts and he tells them he went to go to CVS and Whole Foods on January 1st for his mother, that a babysitter came over to the house to take care of the kids. And the police quickly figure out that Walsh had misled him about his whereabouts on January 1st and 2nd. But the timeline on this case is confusing because, again, they are the police only come into this on on January 4th. They're looking for a missing woman, as Bob Walsh will go into a little bit more extensively at the end of the episode. The police first thought that Anna Walsh had committed suicide and was somewhere in the nearby woods. And I'm sure, again, Brian's kind of con. They probably saw this guy who was not a raving madman with a knife and thought, okay, this guy is legitimately, I think he can, I think he can pull off legitimacy. Walsh can. And I'm sure he did this with the Cohasset police. Yeah, absolutely. But I I think they were getting a vibe right away. She was missing at like five o'clock in the morning. And right away, they were going to start looking at phone calls and all of that. And immediately he suspicion falls on him. Brian sort of tells him this story that he lost his phone. He goes up to his mother's house and he can't find his phone and he gets lost. And there's all kinds of unaccounted time for, mind you also, Laura, he is on an ankle bracelet. He's not even supposed to be leaving the house at this point. And this case just starts to build. The police- it starts to build, but Sarah, I have to tell you, as you know, I, I, a lot of people know, I work at Ferragamo and I work with a woman and, and she does not, you know, she doesn't want her name out there. And she was friends with Anna uh, through fashion and design and had had Anna to her home. And right away, before anything came out in the press, she and I think many of Anna's friends pointed the finger at him. They knew something was wrong. So I think that the people around her may have known that something was suspicious. Her friends and the people around her were immediately suspicious of him. That was the gossip I heard right away when she was missing. January 6th, the police have obtained a search warrant. They drain the pool. There's a pool in the back of the Walsh's resident. And they search the nearby woods because her phone had pinged from the woods actually January 1st and January 2nd. They also seize evidence from the house, including electronic devices. And weirdly, that same day, the Walsh's former house on 275 Jerusalem Lane caught fire. 
anyway, we'll talk to Bob. Bob Ward was literally on the scene, so he'll talk to us at the end of the episode in more detail about that. Right. Weird and just for, for listeners, fire. this was the home they had lived at prior to their current residence. So they had sold this home and moved into a rental home, which is interesting. So this was their former residence. So Sarah, a lot actually goes on in, in a few days. Maybe you could just kind of go through the timeline and tell the listeners what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Really on January 8th, after the discovery of a broken and bloody knife in the basement of the Walsh residence, everything kind of just starts snowballing in this case. And then the missing person case becomes a murder investigation. Brian is arrested also on the 8th for misleading the police, and he's held on a $500,000 bail. So we do have to backtrack a little bit here, Laura, in the timeline and discuss what the police were able to discover about Brian Walsh since Anna's disappearance on January 1st. On January 1st, between the hours of 4.55 a.m. and 1.21 p.m., 14 internet searches were conducted on an iPad recovered from the Walsh house. So Sarah, before we go any further, this is like... This is so incriminating. Obviously, it's all alleged, but why don't you just read them? There's really, I think the gravity of them when you read them in a row is pretty heavy. Would these be the searches that he did where we're assuming after, if we're assuming they got in a fight and Anna was killed, we're assuming these searches were happening after that? We don't know, Laura. Brian Walsh's son's iPad. And here are the searches that were conducted from that device. Okay, I'll just read them off. How long before a body starts to smell? How to stop a body from decomposing? How to bound a body? 10 ways to dispose of a dead body if you really need to. How long for someone to be missing to inherit? Can you throw away body parts? What does formaldehyde do? How long does DNA last? And you had a great comment about that one. Yeah, I had to say. Yeah, I don't know how we got into Harvard. Not, I mean, that's that's pretty basic. How long does DNA? Longer than probably his lifetime, I think we could say. How about thousands of years? Yes. Okay, on yeah. that one. Can identification be made on partial remains? Dismemberment and best ways to dispose of a body. How to clean blood from a wooden floor. Luminol to detect blood. What happens when you put body parts in ammonia. Is it better to throw away crime scene clothes away or wash them? He's going to have the answer to at least one of those questions, and that's can partial remains point to identification because they have recovered some tissue. So that's right. No, that's right. So January 2nd, the internet searches continue, including one at 1235. And we'll like, keep note of this one. Hacksaw, best tool to dismember. And on that same day, when Walsh, by the way, has completely misled the police about his whereabouts on January 1st and January 2nd, I have to note on that he told them, if you recall, that he went to the Whole Foods and to the CVS, I think near his mother's house. They were they scoured those surveillance videos. They found no sign of him at right. either one of those establishments. So he was just putting them on a wild goose chase. And that's originally why he was arrested for misleading the police. Correct. And also on that same day, January 2nd, Walsh is 
caught on camera at the Home Depot in Rockland. Now, Rockland, Laura, is about maybe 10 minutes away from the Walsh residence, maybe 15 in Cohasset. And he is seen on camera at the Home Depot, and he has a black mask on, blue gloves. He is buying all kinds of cleaning supplies, mops, drop cloths. I mean, Laura, he spends $450 on cleanup supplies, all of these items, some of which are recovered in later searches, and he pays cash. So it looks pretty bad, Sarah. So she's last seen alive at New Year's Eve with their friend and Jem, and he leaves. So we're probably looking at a few hour time frame, but, but you know, maybe between 12 and 3 when yes. something may have, may have happened or gone wrong in that house before those Google searches started. Right. I think Jem left at like 1.30, I believe. 1.30. So, yeah. We'll speak to that and, you know, what we right. think on that uh, in, in, a, in a minute. But on January 3rd, a man matching Walsh's appearance is seen on video loading heavy garbage bags into dumpsters in Abington and Brockton. And again, these are all, these are towns that are relatively close to Cohasset. Brockton is kind of little, kind of acknowledged to be a little bit of the seedier part of town, but he's seen dumping these very heavy bags. Yes, which is very reminiscent of of the Doulis case, which was a, a brown case, another high profile crime, a missing mother. They had both attended Brown, which is how it was on our radar. And she went missing a very, very similar circumstances. And he was seen around town dumping parcels in garbage cans and had been arrested and was out on bail when he killed himself. So, you know, it was very similar, a lot of similar elements and, you know, very wealthy couple. It's uh, a lot of a lot of similar things. Keep in mind, this is January 3rd, and Anna has not even been reported missing yet, okay? So January 4th, Anna is reported missing, as we know. Brian allegedly makes additional purchases, including squeegees and a trash can. And Cohasset police launch a ground search at that point. Now, and January that's really when everything blows up in the media, Sarah. Yeah. But at that point, it's a tragic missing woman. What happened to this woman? You know, this is what is being reported. It's a story at this point, but as we'll see, it definitely is developing. So January 5th, Brian Walsh's cell phone shows that he traveled to his mother's apartment complex up in Swampscott. January 6th, police are searching the nearby woods, they drain the pool, as we mentioned, and they continue the ground search. They also search Anna's place in Washington, D.C., trying to find her as well. And the mother's home as well, correct? And I believe the mother's home as well. That's right. That's when the weird fire happens at the Walsh's former home. So on January 8th, as we mentioned, this is when everything, just proverbial stuff, hits the fan. A bloody broken knife and blood are recovered from the basement in the Walsh's home. Brian Walsh is arrested, and the next day, Brian is arraigned. The judge sets his bail at 500000 That same day, investigators recover a total of 10 tra trash bags from a transfer station in Peabody. So, Laura, this is from his mother's apartment, from Brian Walsh's mother's apartment in Swampscott. This is where they take the trash basically. Right. So, so they, they tracked the garbage and went to the dump. Actually, we can post pictures of that because they went through the dump on this search. 
Yeah, that's right. And they were able to find some items. And what they find in the bags was very damning. They find a Tyvek suit, a bloody rug, towels, a hacksaw. And if you recall, Laura, he did that search about best tool for dismemberment. And when they run the DNA, they find both Anna and Brian as contributors. And they link Anna's DNA to human tissue and blood recovered in the bags. They also find a pair of Hunter's brand boots that belong to Anna, a necklace, and a vaccination card with her name on it. This looks pretty bad, Sarah, even for a no-body case. The Google searches alone followed up by the Home Depot trip is very, very damning. It is. And so on January 17th, Brian is charged in the murder of his wife. Let me just tell you that I did not know this. I watched the news coverage. He was just back in court yesterday on February 9th in Quincy District via Zoom. I didn't know this. Do you know that he is also charged with disinterring a body, digging up a body? So I think he buried her and then dug her out and dismembered or dismembered. And then I, I don't know, but that's another, they must have evidence for him to be charged with digging up a body. They must have found evidence of that. We, we, there's just a lot of gaps in this case that we don't know about. Absolutely. And, and he has a very odd affect in court. Initially, he was somewhat smiling in the, in the first court appearance before he was charged with the murder. But even since then, whenever I see it, it just seems to have a very flat affect. Absolutely. And we just also have to say he's represented by a very good attorney, Tracy Minor. I don't believe in adjudicating cases in the media. Give him his fair day in court. Let's find out what really happened. Let's get the evidence in a courtroom in front of a jury and not convict him through the press because he's innocent until proven guilty. You know, we talk a lot in our podcast about privilege and about different elements of wealth and the justice system. It's just not lost on me that Brian is indigent now and he has one of the best attorneys in Boston. She's, so, she's excellent. And, and she also represented him on the art fraud case, though, too. There is a certain level of privilege he's getting here with a big level of privilege with the defense he's going to be able to mount in this case. And I think it's going to be an aggressive one. I think it's going to come down to degrees of guilt of murder. And uh, somebody else would not be getting the same level of defense. Who knows what happened? And, And when we talked to Bob Ward at the end of this episode, he has a very interesting sort of theory about the trajectory of their relationship and what was going on behind closed doors. He'll speak to that when we talk to him. But I just think that from what I can tell, with someone like Brian Walsh, he felt he could kind of get away with anything. Yeah, he did, basically. What I'm saying is, you know, high profile people do love these high profile cases. And and with that comes the privilege he gets of this great attorney, because these crimes happen throughout Boston and throughout America. And and these people are not gifted these fabulous attorneys. No, it's very true. And recently in in this area, we've had the spate of cases. There's there's a terribly tragic case of a child murder in Duxbury, which is a very similar community to Cohasset, very wealthy. That's another tragic case. And then just last night, there was a case up in Andover, another wealthy 
what is happening. There is usually we get murders in Lynn and Everett and Brockton, and it's just these something's going on. It's very bizarre. Obviously, this is very regional, but to people who don't know, I mean, these are some of the most expensive suburbs in Massachusetts, and all of these crimes are crimes within the family. And I think that's why it's so striking to us, because you can move to the safest suburb there is, but if if there's a perpetrator in your own family, you really aren't safe. No, or, men- or mental illness or, you know, because there's all, all these cases differ. But that's what we're seeing here. And I think that's what's so alarming. Yeah, no, for absolutely. And we want you to hold on because we now have a great interview with Bob Ward. And he's going to speak to some of the details of this case. He also, as we said, he broke a very important part of this case. And he was right there at the scene at a lot of these events. So we had to get on that crime in Andover. What's up with that? That That's what he killed himself too. Yeah, no, that was a murder. It, a 12-year-old boy. Oh my God. I just said, it, it just, I was in the dentist's office yesterday, just shaking my head. You know, the guy who was also waiting for the dentist, we were just like, what, what is going on? But the sad thing to me, Laura, is that that kind of stuff happens in other neighborhoods and you just don't really hear about it if it happens. I mean, you hear about it, yes, but it's not like, I don't know, it just is not given the kind of attention that I think these hyper, because we don't expect people who have nice homes and Volvos to do this kind of stuff. Well, I mean, I think it gets back to, you know, why we send our kids to certain colleges and we think we are shielding uh, or we go to certain schools where we started, you know, this podcast initially, that idea. And that kind of goes into our social groups that we want to shield ourselves kind of from the bad part of society. And I think what we've explored a lot here in Ivy League Murders is you can't completely shield yourself from the bad part of society. You can shield yourself maybe from some crime that's economic. But, you know, there is, you know, we see it. I mean, time and time again, mental illness. And actually, a lot of it is economic, right? No matter how much you have, these things can fall. It can um, be it can be even more pressure, I think, in some ways, because... Well, I because think it's you, all re- relative. Let's say it's all relative, you know. I, because I don't you're on... Be- yeah, you're, you're, but you're pressured to have this sort of keep up with the Joneses kind of thing, which... Definitely in, in Brian Walsh's case was, was, I think he knew that the gig was up. I think they had an argument. He's not looking so good these days. She was still really attractive. Who knows if it was a case of, well, if I can't have you, nobody else can. Maybe there was a financial motive for him. Or what's your, you had a theory too about what happened that night. Yeah, I just don't think it's that complicated. I think he was an angry, controlling man. And I think that he was pushed probably to his extreme stress-wise facing prison time. And somebody like that, I just don't think it takes a lot. I don't think he planned it. I think they probably had a small argument. She could have looked at him the wrong way. And boom, he could have exploded and hit her. It doesn't take much for people like that. I picture him in that house in Cohasset with three small kids doling out the gold fish for the kids. And, And his life has become very dreary. It's winter in this house. He's not employable. He's facing federal charges. And her trajectory is going up. I mean, she's this like 
becoming this superstar at Tishman's Fire. It's very impressive. Well, I you mean, I, I think more will come out. I'm not sure it was that clear cut. I, I mean, Maybe I not. think, I think, you know, there's no way to say she's not, I think, I mean, we want to make the victim very angelic, but I mean, she obviously had to know about, you know, what he was involved with financially. And I mean, I think there's some responsibility on there as a spouse. She did. She knew about the art fraud. She knew about all of this. And I think they were definitely living above their means. And I think he just was an angry, rageful man with some mental illness. And I think he just exploded. But also they were liquidating assets. They needed money. They had an apartment. I think it was in Lynn. I'm not quite sure that they had sold right before Christmas for cash. They had, you know, they had sold the place on Jerusalem Road. I'm not quite sure. They needed cash for what, for whatever reason. There was something going on financially that was, and who knows what she made at Tishman's Fire. Was it enough? Was it enough to keep up with this lifestyle? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's they they had a, a you know a lifestyle that would require making millions of dollars a year. I'm not sure sh- she made millions of dollars a year at Tishman's Fire. This is all going to come out. I think it's all going to come out, and I think what we're going to probably see it was a house of cards falling around. And I, I just I don't think it was that complicated. I think he just snapped and probably hit her, and she died. And then it got very gory from there. And when he panicked and started doing the Google searches, and I think he'll, it will come down to, I think he could walk away with the manslaughter on this because of the defense he has in no premeditation and as, as horrible as the crime is. And I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out and to learn more about Anna and to see what was really going on behind that, you know, fabulous shuttered home they had. More information is just going to keep coming out about this as, as time goes on. There's a big, in in March, he's going to be indicted. It's going to go up to Superior Court. And then at that point, I think we'll have a lot more. Can I just say something really superficial, though? Yeah. Just for the, for the record, for once, my hair looks better than yours. <laughs> yeah, I've been sick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for once that's okay. true <laughs> um all right always always good to uh do this and uh anyway yeah. and yeah. we'll keep we'll keep you abreast because i think uh we're gonna i think new news is just gonna keep coming out uh, even before that things are gonna leak so we have a lot more coming on the brian walsh case this is just the tip of the iceberg we decided to release our interview with bob ward as a separate interview So after this episode, please tune into part two. In the coming weeks, we also have fascinating discussions coming up with attorney Peter Ellican, a highly regarded Boston attorney and legal expert, as well as an interview with Anthony Amore, author, director of security at the Isabella Stewart Gardner, and an art theft and forgery expert. Thanks for listening. Murder, murder, murder.